song for the healing of the world that we may heal as one with every voice, with every song we will move this world along and our lives will feel the echo of our healing with every voice, Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world that we may dream as one with every voice with every song we will move this world along today for spirit in action we'll be speaking with joseph maslish joe's piecework and history cover a lot of the activist map Back in the late 1960s, he intentionally confronted the Vietnam War by relinquishing his deferment, which led to two and a half years in prison. With inspiration from the Jewish prophets, Joe's concerns included civil rights, peace, equality, and especially the way in which people need to work out problems, leading to his work as a mediator and marriage and family therapist. I found him through the Southern California War Tax Resistance Group, and Joe Maslish joins us today from Los Angeles. Joe, I'm so pleased to speak to you today for Spirit in Action. Well, pleased to join you and your audience, Mark. Thank you. I, of course, got to know you through Southern California War Tax Resistance and their granting, and I want to say thanks to you and the others who've made possible a grant that helps Northern Spirit Radio do its work. How many years have you been doing this with Southern California War Tax Resistance, the granting process? I think our first grant we gave out in 1980. However, uh, I've been a war tax resistor earlier than that. That's when we got established in 1979 and gave our first grant of $99 to a battered women's shelter, actually, which we viewed as a kind of a anti-war action on our part and on part of the shelter. In a week or two or three, I'm going to be presenting a program speaking with some of the grantees from this year, besides, of course, Nerd and Spirit Radio. Who were the grantees, and how do you pick out who receives these funds from the Alternative Fund? Some of the depositors, those who choose to be more active in the war tax resistance and its associated war tax alternative fund here in the Los Angeles area, meet usually about once a year and occasionally at other times for planning to publicize and educate people about war tax resistance. And we uh, talk over the grant applications that we've received. We usually get about 10 or so. And we make our choices. Usually we support every applicant, but with differing amounts depending on the size of their project and what we would like to emphasize. We make our grants of a few thousand dollars a year. That's interest that's become available from our investing refused war taxes in usually a community-oriented bank. This year, 
Some of them were, well, you mentioned Northern Spirit Radio, also another group called News and Letters, which is a kind of political and economic education group. And not because we agree with everything in the newsletter, it's because we like the general idea of public education. That's been one of our emphases over the years, but also direct service things. And then some political organizing, too. Nine to Five as a working women's organization favoring all kinds of workplace protections and some peace activities, too. The Nevada Desert Experience, which conducts activities and education about nuclear dangers, nuclear weaponry, and some associated things that got very interested in the drones. That's an example of a few of them. I think that would give you an idea of the range of things we've covered, sometimes two international projects. One of our early donations was in 1983, I think, to some reconstruction in Lebanon, which had suffered a lot of destruction, mostly financed by the United States government. So it kind of cycles back, the idea is to cycle back some earnings based on refused federal taxes and turn them into um, projects that help repair some of the damage done directly by the uh, way taxes are spent or indirectly by the lack of spending, lack of public spending. So this has been our approach over the years. And I think you don't necessarily take just the withheld taxes. You're taking interest or return on investment. Are you also distributing some of the withheld taxes themselves? Our approach has not been to do that. There are about 20 or 30 such funds around the country, and they have their different approaches. Some of them have mixed approaches. Some just plain give away the refused tax monies. Our approach has been to bank the refused funds that are sent in and allow the person, we call them the depositor, to get their money back. Oftentimes, they're collected upon by the Internal Revenue, and they may not be able to stand the complete loss of all the funds that they've refused with some amount of penalties. So they get back, but only they can get back only up to the amount that they actually deposited because the interest they concede to the granting of the funds. And they also uh, have to bear whatever interest and penalties the revenue system assesses against them. So our approach has been grant from the interests Or sometimes people have said that if they die with uh, something in the account, we can distribute that as grants or we can use that for our organizing, support of our organizing work, which is principally for giving out literature. That's our approach. Well, I've already spoken to a couple other members of your group, Joe. I needed to speak to you because you have such a long and really striking history of activism in different professions. Mostly, if people go out and search for Joseph Maeslish out on the Internet right now, I think they'll mainly find you either connected with war tax resistance or with mediation. When did you become a mediator? You know, since mediation, which is basically good listening and a few comments for people in a conducting a dispute, people who have a dispute, and a feeling of being in favor of some of the most basic objectives that each party has. So you could see that a good friend might be a mediator also. Formally speaking, I started studying this in 1989. I heard about it just a few years before. By chance, I was doing some nonviolence 
education and action training for the Great Peace March that went across the country in 1986, and it started in the Los Angeles area. So I gave a couple of workshops for that, and one of my workshops, the start of one of my workshops was delayed because people were finishing a workshop on mediation, and that's the first time I remember hearing the word. But in, in various ways, I used uh, some of the mediation, some of the things that turned out to be the mediation skills. I used them a lot earlier in my life, so it's hard to place a beginning. But formally speaking, was back then in '89, and met uh, quite a lot of mediators since then. As I said, you've got quite a history of activism. You told me earlier that you have, from the age of 15, a picture of Martin Luther King that you saved. So it must have struck you at a fairly early age, the civil rights work. Did you get involved in civil rights work right away to get started? Is that how you got catapulted into activism? Again, I want to divide between when I started thinking about things and when I started taking some actions that would be recognizable by somebody watching me. I would want to reference my education and how I was attracted to the social ideals and trying to think them through, uh, some study of the Hebrew prophets whom I like quite a lot. And so those were some of the end preparation of the general values that I was fortunate to have around me in my household when I was a youngster. However, for, as far as actions, yes, I would say around 1960, partly uh, under the influence and inspiration of the early civil rights sit-in movement that started in that year, 1960. But also, as you say, the bus boycott of about three or four years before when I cut out that picture of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., but for, as far as me participating as an active person, it would be back then. I was 18 years old, and I had already been in college, actually, which I started a little earlier than most. Did some fundraising support, made some donations, and so on to support the early student sit-in movement. Yeah, that was the beginning of it. Also, some voter registration work in 1960. So those were some of the earliest things, at least the earliest that uh, I can recall right now. You mentioned to me earlier also that in 1960 you were a page at the Democratic National Convention and in that period you were also subscribing to the Student Voice, which was the newsletter of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So I feel the 60s coming on in your own personal experience there. But there was one contrasting experience, it seems contrasting to me, and that was that you were enrolled in an ROTC training program between 59 and 61. How did those all fit together, and what, what was bubbling up in you at that time? That's a, a nice question. It certainly can sound odd to people. It was not out of any personal enthusiasm that I enrolled in ROTC. It was a requirement of all people who weren't military veterans, females, or conscientious objectors, which I had no idea what that meant. To any extent that I thought of it, I thought it was restricted to a couple of religious sects. I was 16 years old when starting UCLA, and I fit the requirements, so I figured that's the way I had to do it. Now, a friend of mine purposely did not go to a University of California campus, although he had the choice for uh, those first couple of years of his college schooling because he wanted to stay away from that. So there were people who had uh, more consciousness than I about it back then. 
So that was my uh, enrollment, and I figured on the advice of somebody who was already a student that in the Air Force ROTC, you wouldn't carry a rifle around. So I thought that'd be interesting to learn about flight, uh, things like that. Then, however, the peace subjects did come up, and you could have identified me as trouble back then, not because I was, you know, any bad behavior in the class. I got all the highest grades and everything, but that just seemed to be a habit of mine. But I remember one day the uh, instructor, whom I liked quite a bit, a charming young man, wrote our national objectives on the blackboard. And he had, number one is to possess sufficient destructive power to be able to uh, you know, harm or destroy any potential attacker. Number two was to have communicated to the other party, you know, have that, have that known. And number three was let the other party know under what circumstances we, always meaning, of course, the United States and its military, would employ the destructive power so they'd know what were the things that they could and couldn't do without uh, suffering the retaliation. And then number four was create an atmosphere for peace. And I looked over the list and uh, I asked the lieutenant, because something seemed wrong to me. Not that I rejected the deterrence kind of thinking. I didn't. But I didn't think that as long as you were in that deterrence posture, you'd be able to create an atmosphere for peace. It just didn't add up. You know, be so prepared under the right or we should say wrong conditions to use all that destructive power on some party somewhere in the world. That just didn't seem to be the spirit from which you could build peace. And so I asked him about what appeared to be this contradiction. He simply repeated the objectives and didn't see any difficulty at all. And I remember uh, outside of class, I went through this again with him because what was he not understanding about my doubts and what was or what was I not understanding about his comfort with this I remember holding my bicycle and standing outside and he was as I say a very genial guy and quite willing to go over it again and help this puzzled student but we didn't resolve, resolve our different understandings there and I haven't got that straight yet in my mind about how a hostile uh, posture ready to uh, wreak great destruction could allow enough room in our mind and spirit for the creativity and inventiveness and even some risk-taking that would be required to improve a conflict atmosphere, to use a more general term than, uh, than to build peace. It impressed me quite a lot. That incident impressed me quite a lot. And it's actually, as I look back, formed uh, one of the bases of my interest in psychology and trauma and how it affects people's thinking and choices right through today, uh, including some of my professional work. Well, there's two different directions I want to go at the same time, but let's start with the one that's maybe more fundamental for you. You mentioned that there was some influence of your home that prepared you to be an activist that prepared you to be concerned about civil rights or maybe to think more objectively about war, as you just spoke of in your ROTC class. What kind of influences are you talking about from home? Well, I'd say both my parents were activists in uh, somewhat different ways. My father was acquainted 
due to his work history, but he'd become acquainted with a lot of people from various levels of uh, political life in California. He was quite comfortable and he had some, let's say, long-term personal acquaintanceships with many figures. And he was fairly interested in the history of things, politics. I remember he'd read a lot about the New Deal, which he experienced as a young man, and other books of history, and some participation in electoral politics, a little bit of that. Also in various community institutions, he was a supporter of some cultural institutions, educational institutions, particularly a Jewish educational university level, small institution that he was involved with for a long time. So some of these things were his interests. And my mother, more from the point of view of somebody who had been a travel writer for a dozen years and had visited all kinds of places in the 1920s and 30s, done such things as been the only woman riding on a bus from Damascus to Baghdad in 1935 and writing articles about those things, reviewing books, interviewing many people, quite involved in current history affairs, visiting Europe a couple of times in the 1930s, including Germany in 1938. And so these interests, I, I guess it was a, seemed to be an assumed background that a person would be interested in public affairs. Of course, people can be interested in current affairs and be a conservative. I guess Sarah Palin is probably interested in current affairs, but you would hardly call her a progressive or a liberal, at least not in terms of the path that you followed. The Jewish family that you grew up in and religion that you practiced, you mentioned earlier the prophets as examples. Is that just a foundational step to how you got to where you are? Do you continue to practice? I doubt that Palin's that interested in current affairs, actually. The current affairs she's interested in is probably her own career and ambition, but maybe there wouldn't be anybody left in politics of all folks of, of that kind of interest were out of it. I don't know. Well, I would say, the pro- why were the prophets attractive to me? Well, for something, some other reason. You know, there was some kind of affinity that uh, spoke to me about that, uh, some sort of humanistic principles, and perhaps it's uh, just the... Uh, Either the way I was treated as a youngster or the way I, as a youngster, wished I were being treated. But some mix of those, I suppose, but enough of the favorable and supportive experience to give me the idea that, hey, all society ought to be like this. And uh, no, I don't have the religious practice now. Uh, I just figure, in fact, one of the prophets quoted the Lord as saying, I'd prefer it if you forgot my name and ignored my ceremonies, but followed my way. And I thought, that sounds pretty good, so that's what I'm trying to do now. I wouldn't ascribe any particular this to the religion itself, though, because most of the religions have about the range of potentials that humans do ourselves, since it's humans that devise the religions, from the destructive to the constructive, from the cooperative to the, well, let's say, very narrow, narrowly conceived attitudes, whether it's Judaism or any other religion. But I I guess I used the pieces of it that appealed to whatever I already had in me and found that supportive. Uh, As an activist, I immediately started mixing and participating with people from all the religions, and I've found all of them represented in some of the activities that have meant the most to me over the years. Each of us is a traveler 
And there's lots of free advice On how to make Earth's journey And how to find paradise We can search for ancient secrets Or ride on fashion's whim But the Hebrew prophet's simple words Will live past all of them Keep your eye on freedom Put your hand to charity Be strong enough to be gentle on the road song travelers apropos of the inspiration joseph maslish got from his jewish upbringing and the jewish prophets in particular let's go on joe about how your life and activism unfolded in the 60s you became increasingly active and at a certain point you had a student deferment so you couldn't be drafted into the war in vietnam but you deliberately changed your status tell me about that and what the outcome of that was I was a deferred student and grateful for that. But as the war itself and the movement against the war or the movements against the war, since they weren't always united, advanced, I 
started thinking more and more about my personal status as related to the war as being both a source for support for the war and a source for opposition to it. What I'm saying is that I believe we are all inevitably parts of both the problem and the solution. I think it's kind of facile to say, well, quit being part of the problem and be part of the solution. You just change the proportions in your life. I figured, along with others who formed the draft resistance, that we needed a personal component to change our personal relations, as well as to continue with the demonstrations and agitation about the war and peace issues, as about the other issues, and that my uh, my status as a deferred graduate student at that time was not making as strong a statement and an action as I might be able to do and not making the contribution that I might to the peace side of things were I to relinquish my deferment and just refuse any orders from the system, come what may. In a way, I was inspired by thinking of things like the bus boycott, the various sit-ins and the actions, which had proven to me beyond doubt that the civic power of uh, action clear action, nonviolent action, and occasional non-cooperation, including sometimes illegal non-cooperation, were pretty important forces in all social change. So I thought of it as a kind of civil rights and equality action, as well as an anti-war action, and as well as a way that a non-soldier could support the increasing number of soldiers who were refusing orders. I figured, what's my parallel action to that? So I resigned from the system, as prosecutor in my criminal case put it. Defendant, in effect, resigned from selective service, he said, and I was quite gratified to see that he understood it. And that was in 1967. I'd seen the demonstrations also and participated in many of them, and I could see that there was a certain stridency, if that's a word I can use, developing. Uh, I was all for nonviolent militants, but if that's, I had the feeling that if, if people were avoiding the personal question and betting everything on the mass actions, that wasn't going to get it, and it might actually just plain increase social chaos and not really help the cause of peace if there wasn't enough balance there. I had the advantage of a few others thinking this through and writing and talking about it, such people such as David Harris, people of Stanford and Palo Alto. And then I'd done some reading in history of uh, refusers from previous wars, so that helped me along the way, too. And so did this go easily? What happened when you refused this? The government just said, fine, we don't want Joseph Maislish. He wouldn't be a good soldier anyhow? No, no, they didn't. They sent me another draft card after I'd sent mine to them, and and it was uh, marked uh, delinquent because I had disobeyed the rules. I turned that one in, too, by the way, and they, they ordered me to show up for examination and induction, and I figured that I would show up outside their building but not go in. Others of us uh, went in or didn't show up at all, went in and refused, various kinds of things people were doing. Some people were preparing various kinds of legal defenses, such as they were improperly denied a deferment or improperly denied conscientious objector status. I didn't try either of those. After all, I had relinquished my deferment in the first place. So I showed up outside the place. One other of my Los Angeles resistance partners was also ordered for induction that day. We stood outside with our supporters, and we saw 
the young people who were going into the building, probably off to the wars, of course. My father was there with me. He started to cry, actually seeing the families separating. And he just kept saying, what is this really for? Expressing the general kind of unclarity in the populace about what this war was for. So that was my experience on that day. Shortly afterward, I and my other resistance partner and the other 10 or so people who had refused that day were indicted by the Department of Justice and the grand jury system and ordered to show up for arraignment and eventually trial. It was kind of odd, odd thing happened. Instead of there being about six or seven months until we were indicted, we were indicted two weeks after our refusal, two or three weeks after our refusal or our non-showing up because my resistance associate was the son of a noted actor who was interviewed on the television, I think, that night of our refusal to show up inside. And he is, was a decorated World War II person. And he said that this was the proudest day of his life, that his son was refusing. So I think this meant to the government that they should take action quickly and show that they were on the ball. But of course, it would be unfair to prosecute only that young person, the, the son of this noted fellow, so they indicted all of us from that day, and that was their idea of fairness about things. So we were prosecuted a little sooner than we would have been otherwise. I was convicted. It's pretty simple, you know, straightforward trial and sentenced to the usual sentence for our district, federal district at that time, which was three years of imprisonment. Actually, I was in for two and a half because there's some statutory reduction of time. What was that experience like for you? Did you regret or was this a, a valuable effort in terms of part of the peace effort? The value for me mainly was in my action and the actions of those who were supporting me or doing their own actions. And I want to distinguish between who did what. You know, we declined to cooperate. And then what the government did was prosecute us and imprison a lot of us. So, you know, I can't say what they did was helpful. It's, uh, we tried to respond well. People stuck together. We, they kept track of each other, uh, attended each other's trials if they could, or visited in prisons, depending on where we were imprisoned. So our actions, we just tried to keep uh, expressing the kind of communitarian spirit that was behind our peacemaking attitude anyway, and our anti-war attitude. But it was helpful. Uh, this is this is something illustrated for me again what I had learned in observing and participating in a indirect way, but observing the sit-in movements and the movement for voter registration in Mississippi, which I interviewed many participants in for you know, some radio programs. As a matter of fact, that I made back in 1964 and 65, so I got to meet quite a lot of the people and hear many, many stories. And I observed for myself as a most direct participant in my war refusal, the effects and the challenges that come along with direct personal non-cooperation. How was it uh, for me, though? It was, a, it was a long time, but also there were a, a lot of just a lot of incidents that continued to illustrate the, the importance of personal action and of group support. There were occasional activities in the prisons too that some of them got me in moderate amounts of trouble with the authorities there, but mostly I was a kind of quiet prisoner. It certainly gave me a look up close with that part of the injustices in society. Certainly before, as a history student, as an activist, a civil rights participant and supporter, 
I knew plenty about the inequalities. But to see them day by day, to learn some of the different sentences, that, for example, that people got for activities that just seemed to be a very strange way of... For example, somebody who participated in an $8 million swindle, he had a two-year sentence, and somebody who'd been participant in a $4 million swindle, he had a four-year sentence, and then somebody who actually I had known on the, on the streets who had done a $6,000 unarmed robbery of a national bank, he wound up with a 13-year sentence. Need I say he was an African-American. So when you see this and you see the effect on people's lives, it's just uh, phenomenal. I also observed a lot of heroin use as a prisoner, which sounds odd to people, but uh, that was another series of stories in one of the prisons particularly. And uh, I say prisons plural because due to various events, I was transferred around a good deal, and I was actually, for periods short or long, in half of the federal prisons that existed at the time. I maintain now an interest in this, in imprisonment and criminal justice system. You know, and, and maybe it'd be good for your audience to know that there are about nine times as many prisoners now in the United States at almost all levels, of between federal, state, local, between seven and nine times as many prisoners now as there were in, let's say, 1970, somewhere during my term of imprisonment. There aren't nine times as many people in the country, only about double, I think. And this is something I really want people to think about and look into. When people ask me about my time of imprisonment, I always kind of drift over to what's going on now, because that's what I'd like people to focus on and to become interested in. I'll come back to more about that in a moment, Joe. I want to remind our listeners, you're tuned in to Spirit in Action, and I'm your host. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. Find all of our programs there, links to our guests, and leave us comments. We need your help and input to move spirit forward through our program. We're speaking today to Joseph Mazlish. He's over in California. He's part of the Southern California Wartax Resistance Group. He's been a Wartax resistor since 1966. And he went to prison. We were just talking about that. And I need to ask you some more about that, Joseph, because it seems to me you speak rather dispassionately about it. I think most people, when they consider, let's say, the more strident forms of activism, they're afraid to move forward toward that because of the penalties that will come down upon their head. You don't seem to be terribly scarred by this experience you had, two and a half years in prison. Why not? Why are you not one of the angry, broken people? Uh, I was, uh, uh, let's not think that I wasn't afraid and concerned about this uh, as I decided to be a resistor or as what seemed a likely imprisonment approached. I surely was. You know, you're talking to the me of 40 years later. I'm concerned about other things now, not so I wouldn't show the level of concern that I had back then. And it's also true that when people look back at the past, they may leave out in discussing it some of the discomfort or strong emotions, including fear that they had back at the time. But well, I'm glad I don't give this impression of brokenness, perhaps because I had a chance to think about things in advance and make more of a choice than people who didn't have access to the deferments, for example. Uh, still, there were many difficult moments there 
being uh, transferred around a lot, sometimes as a kind of involuntary thing. I sort of got arrested in the, in, in, while in a prison once and picked up out of bed at four in the morning by guards with clubs and helmets. And, uh, there were some pretty terrible times, but those, uh, you know, as you pull through them, they sort of take their place with uh, all the stories that you've collected in your life. But no, I wouldn't say embittered about it. That, that I, I, I don't think I had that very much. Uh, I, I remember having some dreams near my release time in which I was, in the dream, I was shouting at the authorities and saying all I wanted to, was just to get out of the places and things that I wasn't so aware of feeling while awake, but they came out in these dreams. And another factor that helped with that, and it's something that I learned about later in study, in my psychology studies, but what was important was the sense of support, not that all of society was supporting us refusers, it wasn't, although the degree of support increased with the passage of the years, but it was that there were people trying to be of help to each other, to me. That's a very helpful thing, and even minority as a community might be, knowing that there are people thinking about one, that they understand what you're trying to do, that's a very big help. You know, it may be, Mark, it occurs to me during this interview now that that is one of the places I started to learn what I now teach as a counselor helping people at workplaces where tragedies have occurred. And part of my goals in visiting them is to reassure them about the uh, value of mutual support in helping them recover from whatever uh, trauma, let's say industrial accident or whatever has happened. So uh, that kind of runs on through to today. So I wouldn't want to leave that out of, of, as an important factor in helping me seem as together as I may seem now. I think, Joe, that by your work and witness, you're one of the people Anne Feeney would like to call a friend. So here's Anne Feeney's song, Have You Been to Jail for Justice? Was it Cesar Chavez? Maybe it was Dorothy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. No matter who your mentors are, it's pretty plain to see. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down, always to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom? Or march that picket line Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine You law-abiding citizens Listen to this song Laws were made by people And people can be wrong Once unions were against the law But slavery was fine Women were denied the vote and children worked the mine. The more you study history, the less you can deny it. A rotten law stays on the books till folks with guts defy it. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down always to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom? Or march that picket line Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine Now the law's supposed to serve 
system fails, it's up to us to speak our peace. It takes eternal vigilance for justice to prevail. So get courage from your convictions. Let them haul you off to jail. Have you been to jail of justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down are ways to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or much that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? Will you go to jail for justice? Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine. Ann Feeney, have you been to jail for justice? Anne will be my guest in the very near future, so you'll have a chance to get to know much more of her work and music. For the moment, we're talking to Joseph Maislish, who did go to jail for justice and has done so much more. Joe, would you make the same choice again? It sounds to me like early on you were a great scholastic achiever, and I know that you worked for a number of years in auto repair, which is not what most people associate with the great scholars. On the other hand, I know eventually you did get involved, and you got a degree in marriage and family therapy. Would you have made the same choice again, and how did how things played out affect where you chose to work? Uh, it's a pretty challenging question. And I hope that all of your audience, each member of your audience, is thinking that over for themselves, too. Because whatever our course in life is, we we think about what our choices have been. I hope we don't get lost too much in thinking about our past choices and either regretting or applauding them, but that we put most of our energies into our choices for today. But as I look back, I'd say, well, there are a couple of things that I would adjust. And what I would have liked would have been to be a little more prompt in making some of the choices and changes. That would have been good, but there were reasons that I wasn't. I was just a hesitant, slow-moving guy back then, uh, maybe now too. It would be odd to apply the term conservative to me, but you might in this sense. So that would be the main regret of just having been slow and inefficient at some of these changes, but that's the way I was. There were a couple of specific things we'd say would have been much better to do differently, and I understand why I didn't do them differently, but the general course of things and the main decisions, those those feel quite good to me now, too. Well, I'm glad you're in that good path. You did switch from working in auto repair to a psychology realm in the mid-'80s. What led to that transfer of your work efforts has it borne the fruit that you wanted it to bear? Yes, yes. Well, let me go and say you've already asked uh, or referred to my change from scholarship, imprisonment, and then uh, mechanical to technical work. That switch was, I just kind of had it with institutional life, and I would prefer to be an employee in small business to being a some very big institution like college life and a more active occupation, physically speaking. Certainly, it was as demanding as far as analytical skills. Uh, Let's not short the technical and repair world in that regard. I was 13 or 14 years in that, and it was very good to me. I learned an awful lot about people and myself and realized that, hey, I'm getting more interested in the people than in the uh, vehicles, which was never my first interest anyway. And all through all this time, I was being as active as I could in the peace work, anti-nuclear work, 
And so I decided to make the jump. I had put together enough money so I could stop that and do some studies at a pretty fast pace in clinical psychology and get myself on the way to licensure as a marriage and family therapist. And I did that, made that next big change, third career or whatever, if we're keeping track. Did I achieve some of the objectives in that? Yes, one of the objectives, by the way, was that I felt something incomplete about the understanding of most peace and social justice activism that didn't have any way of understanding the uh, forces that we were working in opposition to and didn't have much understanding of the dynamics of our own groups, what it really took to have a, a strong group. For example, I benefited a lot from modern feminism, which emphasized the interpersonal relations aspect of problems and of solutions. That helped me a lot in concluding that we needed to understand the interpersonal part of it. Why are people, to a large extent, favoring or not disapproving of really bad social relations, warfare, the distorted war budget, things like that. By then, I was already working with others for a few years in the war tax resistance uh, as an example of the kind of uh, activities I was doing. So I had hopes that through not only the study of psychology, but doing some work in it, that I would learn a lot about this dimension of things. And indeed, I believe I did. Early on in my studies, I, I was intrigued with the question. My professors supported me in pursuing it as a study paper about the question of what distinguishes between people who abused as children do not become abusive of children when they are adults. That's the majority of, of, of abuse victims, by the way. What distinguishes them from those victims of abuse in childhood who do abuse later on in life? I actually found some answers to this, and they're, they're extremely useful for, have a lot of implications for social and political action. So that was quite gratifying to find that, yes, my instinct told me right, there was something useful to learn, to be learned there. Eventually, the work that you got involved with is this mediation work we've already spoken of. I assume you started out doing standard marriage and family therapy, etc.? Some of that, and not as a mediator, but as a counselor, but also some work, oh, just a variety of things, case work, work with youngsters, families with abuse histories or abuse problems, even uh, helped to train some interns in working with adolescents on probation. And at the same time, I was developing some work as a mediator, but usually a mediator for commercial court matters and employment problems. Employment problems. So is this justice work also in your point of view? It's related to it. For example, I worked for a few years as a staff member and then acting director of a community mediation agency. And there were all kinds of problems came to us. We worked pretty closely with a few police divisions and they would refer to us or send people to us that had problems within families, neighbor problems, all kinds of things like that. We also went out and offered our services. So it was a great variety of subjects, usually not litigated matters. But I also worked as a contract worker for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for many years, including now, uh, occasionally mediate an employment discrimination matter for the Postal Service, which means that I don't make a judgment as a hearing officer. I just help people talk about things, see if there's a way that they can solve the problem or at least help them define the problems better. And so it relates to my interest 
back from when I was a history student in industrial relations issues. I suppose in a general way, if, if workplace atmospheres are improved, uh, that's going to help everybody, and that's certainly related to the justice issue, even if it's not uh, completely changing the industrial order. By the way, during the course of my work at workplaces as a crisis counselor, I have learned and I often tell the people I'm working with that the way people are relating to each other, including their management and employee relations, but the way people are treating each other every day forms the basis for how they'll be able to respond and handle a particular crisis that comes up. So I want to call that in general a uh, kind of a revolutionary idea, pretty simple idea, but hard to, for a workplace to make some changes and take advantage of that. But anyway, I put in my little word about that in a general way. I think that's appropriate for my role as a crisis person. Well, we're getting near the end of our hour, Joe. I think that there's so much. We could probably talk for many hours. I'd like to just take an overview and then ask you a kind of a concluding question. You got involved in political activism early, before you're 18, Obviously, with the Democratic National Convention, you connected in some way with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Civil rights was inspirational to you. I understand for some portion of a year you lived in West Jerusalem. You saw things on the ground there. Your opposition to the war grew so that you eventually, I guess you'd say voluntarily, spending two and a half years in jail. You were involved in anti-nuclear movement during the late 70s, war tax resistance participation since 66 and working with War Resisters League. You did auto repair. That must be a major peace effort. And then uh, you got involved with a marriage family therapy, working on trauma and crisis work. So that's a whole range of things you've been involved in. Looking back from in your 70s now, is there any particular thing that you feel like, I really hit it well that this is amongst the most fruitful of work that I've done, what has been the most valuable to the world that you think that you've passed along? And I know that's a lot to distill down into one item, but do you have a sense from the perspective where you're sitting now, what looks most valuable? Well, let's see, from age 68, you know, I look back at that stuff. One of the big areas for developing and communicating that, expressing that spirit that I've been trying to talk about is in interpersonal relationships and family relationships. That may often be a very hard one for people, too. I found it occasionally, uh, more than occasionally, an area of difficulty and an area of challenge. So part of what I'm pleased with, if I have an arc of progress that I've been developing, is my partnership, affectionate partnership of 18 years now, and some of my previous relationships also, and having maintained some of my friendships for 40, 50 years. It's been a valuable part of life, too, and, and an arena in which I've worked out some of my uh, development, and I hope I may say fairly my progress. I think the achievement for any of us is the spirit in which we encounter each step along the way. And I'd like to think that I've become a little clearer in understanding and in actions to make them uh, consistent with the values that I've been clarifying as I worked my way through this life so far. I remember Gandhi's autobiography called My Experiments with Truth. Well, well, it's 
a nice idea that it's uh, that it's really what are we becoming? Are we becoming more of parts of ourselves that we want to emphasize? That's I think what's gratifying to feel like I've yeah made some moves in that direction. A lot left to do, of course. So there's a kind of developmental answer to your question. And rather than name any particular thing, I just hope that it's the spirit in which I've encountered them. And uh, it does involve looking at things and at things and and recognizing my mixed nature and saying, oh, there was some mistakes. There was too much uh, anger or inhibition or whatever it was. So uh, there's my uh, odd answer for your question. I hope that's uh, got enough meaning in it. It seems to me that might be a very good answer for someone who has a degree in psychology and marriage and family therapy. A process answer makes a lot more sense rather than just this objective, on June 30th I did this. I hope that your audience members will, uh, you know, I, I tried to give it without a lot of jargon. I wanted to make that accessible because uh, I and you and your audience members uh, it's part of our business of living, and certainly this, uh, well, you say, the northern spirit that ought to communicate through what we do. As a person who's 12 years younger than you, I think that the witness that you and others did in the 60s certainly helped propel me toward a more activist and more examined life. And so, so many people who joined in together, the community effort, that was the 60s, certainly made a difference to me. But the continuing refinement in everything we do in our life is even more inspirational. So thank you, Joe, for serving as that witness in your life, doing the work that you're called to do, and for visiting with us today for Spirit in Action. Oh, and thank you for passing this along through the generations and through your communication project. That was Joseph Maislish, today's Spirit in Action guest. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.